welcome to the Bronovo Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. Okay, we're recording. Hey, Stephen, good morning. Thanks for uh, taking the time and welcome to the Bro Nouveau podcast. Morning, Thomas. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate the, the time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, I'm a, a rugby Nas, which is uh, a word that my audience may not may not be too familiar with. How would you... Um, so for, for the people who don't really know anything about rugby in the United States, right, where would you define uh, where it sits in the landscape of like UK sports? Right, that's a bit of a t- well. I mean, to start to start off, there's two branches of rugby, yeah. and it's going to to get really into um, some some technicalities. There's rugby union, which is the global, which is globally the most popular form of rugby, but then there's rugby league, which is very popular up in the north of England and particularly in Australia. And the nuances of what makes the two different are largely around the tackle, ruck, and scrum area, which we can discuss a bit further for the American audience just now. But for the most part, I cover rugby union, and that's because I come from South Africa, where I don't actually think there is a rugby league um, club. And if there is, it's really small, and I don't actually know much about the South African rugby league at all. But yeah, so the rugby union is arguably either the second or third most popular sport in the UK. Um, I, I would say it's the second most popular because the majority of the UK and Ireland don't play a lot of cricket. But if they did, then so so England is the way England works. Obviously, it's football, so, um, soccer is number one. Then. For, for a lot of English fans, it would be cricket second and then rugby. But for the majority of the UK, the UK and Ireland, because obviously Ireland is not part of the UK, majority of the UK and Ireland is soccer, uh, rugby, and then a bit varying other sports. Ireland is a little bit different because they've got the Gaelic sports, um, hurling and Gaelic football. They are really up there. Um, some people tell me it's they're bigger than football, like soccer, and other people tell me it's just just below. But basically, they're they're more popular amongst the masses than than rugby would be. Um, but yeah, r- r- rugby is one of the it's been the quote unquote fastest growing team sport for the past twenty years. So I don't know how I don't know how much it's actually grown in that in, in that period since it's been the quote unquote <laughs> fastest growing. But it's. Um, it is it's one of the more impactful one of the most followed um uh sports in the northern hemisphere um particularly in the in the side um that isn't in 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 the the americas um and even in South America, they followed quite a lot. It's not obviously again not as big as football because you you can't compete with the Argentinian football team and Messi mm-hmm. and all them. But the Argentinian rugby team is growing in- incredibly, and their fans are amazing, and they're, they're they're incredibly loyal. In South Africa, it is the second largest uh, team sport as well. Um, again, behind football, um, purely because yeah, um, everyone plays football. Even the rugby players play football when they grow up as kids. Um, in Australia, rugby is not as popular um, as, say, cricket. So cricket would be the second most popular sport in Australia, and then Aussie rules football. 
would be the most popular. Rugby league, again, as I say, has more of a popularity than rugby union at the moment. Um, but that's down to a bit of mismanagement, the way that they took rugby off of mainstream terrestrial TV in Australia, then put it behind a paywall. And um, we actually have somebody on uh, on the show um, quite regularly, Matt Williams. He breaks down exactly what went wrong with Australian rugby and why um, Australian rugby is not as well-supported and as well-liked as it used to be, was it rugby union. And then obviously in New Zealand, it is the big sport. It is the sport. New Zealand... Are like similar to South Africa in a way that um, they live, breathe, and die rugby. There we go, tour of the world. There, <laughs> yeah, got I mean, it, it is a World Cup of uh, well, it, it, it is a true World Cup in, in many aspects. When 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 the World Cup comes around this, this time next year, for sure, I'm I'm stoked for it. I didn't go to Japan, but I went to the one in fifteen. Um, awesome. So yeah. Um, well, actually, I'm actually a little bit um, disappointed in, in a way for the, for next year's World Cup. It's the yeah. first World Cup since 1991 that no Northern American side will take part. After obviously, um, Portugal stunned America yeah. quite recently in, in the qualifiers. <laughs> um, so that, it's great for Portugal because it's the first time they've ever been in a World Cup. But uh, at, at the at the expense of the Americans, I don't, I don't really know what a what a World Cup looks like without America and Canada. I mean, it probably just looks like another different two teams who won't make it out of the pool stages. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, that is, that is a fair point. That is a fair point. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the American fans are always fun. I mean, so I, I randomly started playing rugby. I did, I played more, um, like as a kid, like American football, soccer. And then I got into lacrosse. I went to my high school, didn't make the lacrosse team, but then linked up with the rugby team. And then I got, I got into it and, you know, still play and love it. And uh, what position are you? Uh depends on the team. If uh if it's a good team, I'm on I'm like a, a back row. Um right. like a six, a small a small six. And then um on other teams that play in the center and I've I've moonlighted at fly half. <laughs> fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> yeah, but the backs are way more fun, I would say. Uh, yeah, they get they get they they get a lot more uh time to express themselves. Forwards are just Run it up, crash ball, and not break your face, basically. Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 for the, uh, the offensive linesman uh, is, is how I would describe uh, the majority of forwards. <laughs> for sure. And yeah, so I, I, at first growing up, I before I kind of like became aware of the wider global context, I, I assumed that like in all these countries, rugby is more the top sport because in the U.S. it's so, you know, kind of a niche thing. And then I would travel a bit and realize, oh, wait, no, it's still kind of a subculture in a lot of these other places, you know, like you described with other sports. But, um, yeah, the the most fun I think I've had is well, I was living in San Francisco and the World Cup Sevens came to San Francisco. And the Sevens just has a dynamite energy. And um, I was ended up between two uh, twin brothers from Fiji and I sat with them. And it was so much fun. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. Like for Fiji, sevens is, is, a, is like a cult almost. <laughs> like it, it is their national sport. They, they don't play the fifteens game. Uh, well, I mean, they do, but it, it's not like that's not the dream. Most Fijians, they, when they grow up, they're like it's it's sevens rugby because they are just incredible at it. And I, I'm sure you you experienced it. The, the the way that the the Fijians support their sevens is just 
Oh, like it's so fun. Th- there is no. I, I don't think there are too many other fan groups that are like the Fijians when it comes to the sevens. For sure. So you mentioned um, you're from South Africa. So how did you end up? I guess going back, like where in South Africa are you from, and then how did you end up pursuing a career in uh, sports journalism? So I, I, I'm originally from Johannesburg, uh, or small sort of suburb part of it called Boxburg. Um, and I've always, I mean, I always wanted to play rugby as a, as a kid. Um, grew up playing prop, front row, anywhere in the front row. Um, and then in my final year of high school, I got a couple of injuries that basically ruled me out of ever playing it again pro- properly, mm. uh, which is a bit of a was a bit of a sad thing. Um, because I mean, I, I'm not going to say that I was ever good enough to be professional. I probably wasn't, but I wanted that. That was the dream. That was the goal. Right. Um, yeah. But then when that was ruled out entirely, I was thinking, okay, what are the ways that I can effectively get as close to the pitch as possible? And I, I looked at coaching and I looked at um, refereeing at the time, but neither one of them, I didn't think I was going to be good at either one of those. Um, so then I thought, okay, cool. Um, sports journalism is probably the best way to go about it. I mean, getting paid to watch sport is just every every <laughs> kid's dream, to be honest. Um, so I don't know why more people don't go into sports journalism. But um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I took a gap year and I coached a little bit, um, all, all sports, not just rugby. And that's the year that I decided 100% that I knew I wanted to be a sports journalist. Um, so I, w- I went down to a university in South Africa called Rhodes University in Makanda, n- now known as, also formerly known as Grahamstown. Now it's Mac- now, now the city's called Makanda. And um, I did my undergraduate journalism degree there. Oh, at the same time, I started working for uh, Grocott's Mail, which is the oldest independent um I, I'm, I don't think they're independent anymore, but they used to be the oldest independent um, newspaper in the country. And I started working as a general sports journalist um, slash trainee or whatever, covering the local rugby scene, cricket, and just all the sports in the town itself, which was a fairly... It's Basically, if, if, if you want to see the, the historical... Um, economic divide between societies in South Africa, Makanda is the perfect example because you go from incredibly affluent private school areas to what what in South Africa we call townships or locations and that's basically what you what you see when you when you imagine like a South African slum I don't know it's it's not a good I don't I don't like using the word slum but it's right. probably the it's probably the words that or when I say that you can the American American listeners will probably be able to picture what I mean mm-hmm. um and sort of I covered all of all sports and even in those townships they play a hell of a lot of rugby and a lot of cricket a lot of soccer because I mean those sorts of sports are available to everyone you don't need a whole lot of equipment all you need is really the ball and and, and a field and you can you can play so um some so I started off basically taking photos of the township rugby tournaments and going out to take oh, to cool. um report on them chat to the people in the area there and that sort of got me more and more in, embedded into the um, into the newspaper because at the time the newspaper was basically taking on anyone from the university that wanted to do journalism. They threw them at the sports journalist side of it because that was the easiest sort of thing to get into. You, you're not going to be dealing right. with incredibly politics. I, 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 
<laughs> exactly. You're not going to deal with politics or incredibly hard news stories or um, like some of the more tragic sort of health journalism stuff that you see. And you're not going to be speaking to traumatized families and all that sort of thing. You're just going to be talking about who kicked the ball hard, when, why, and who got who, and who got destroyed on the on the side of the pitch. So it's it's really simple. It's 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 difficult to mess up an interview about sport if if, if, if you even know a little bit about it. Yeah. So that was that was where most of, most of people did their training, and then from from there the sports journalist, sorry, the sports editor of the newspaper got a, took a job in public relations in one of the schools, and he was looking for a replacement for himself, and he basically wrote down three names, and I was one of those three names, and um, at at the age of about, I think it was twenty-one, I became the youngest sports sports editor of the of that particular paper Sick. ever. So, so I was um, working as a sports editor and also at the same time community journalist in my final year at university in South Africa. And so I wasn't just covering sport at that point. I was doing all those other uh, stories, like the more hard-hitting, more more traumatizing, more like I was covering protests every other weekend and um, all that sort of thing. And I'm sure if you've seen a South African protest on the news, they get a little bit uh, spicy is a good way to put it. <laughs> um, yeah, so did did that for, for, for two and a half years and then... Um, to get over to Ireland, I looked at for master's courses, and I ended up in Dublin City, uh, D- Dublin City University's master's program for for journalism, and that sort of brought me over to to Dublin. Beautiful man, good for you for going after it and and kind of chasing the dream, because it seems like I guess like any I mean any pursuit needs dedication and consistency, but that's awesome that you found a way to kind of keep the dream alive. Um, you mentioned there the, the township and the kind of economic divide within South Africa. Um, so my understanding of where the Springboks, which is the South Africa national rugby union team sit in the, um, psyche is that traditionally a very Afrikaner, which is like the white Dutch descendant, um, group in South Africa sports. So kind of more aligned with that. And then, of course, there was maybe people saw Invictus with the uh, 95 World Cup. Maybe that is their exposure. So wh- where do the Springboks sit now in the in the national psyche? And, and does rugby still represent, you know, that kind of divide? Or is it a different kind of uh, place now? Um, it depends on – I guess this is going to be a very um, stupid answer, but it, it depends on who you ask. <laughs> sure. Like the, the, um, there's always going to be those the, the arguably loud minority that will say that the, the Springboks will always be a legacy of apartheid and will always be a thing that we should go away from. And there, there's a movement to try and get rid of the Springbok emblem and Springbok name and replace it with just the Protea, which is the national symbol for, for the rest of the, the sports in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, the Actually, the national soccer team is not the Protea, they're Bafana Bafana, but they still, um, but even uh, all of the teams still have the Protea on them. It's just only the rugby team that has the Springbok over the, 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 the crest. The Protea is on the other side, whereas everyone else has the the protein on the left, on the left hand of the chest, but that's the minority and the people that are still holding on to 
um, to the wrongs of the past, which they have their right to do. They were, were incredibly harshly treated, and I'm not going to tell them not to to think that. But what one thing that has been incredibly um, telling to me is um, to long a, a long history lesson after. After uh, democracy came in, after 1995, there was a period of reconciliation, and um, all obviously all the all the wrongs were tried to be righted. And one of those wrongs was the fact that no person of color was allowed to represent South Africa on the on, on the sports field. Um, so, for, uh, particularly with the Springboks, the, um, Chester Williams um, was one one of the first. He wasn't the first, but he was one of the first people of color to ever wear the Springbok jersey, and he wore it in 1995, and he won a World Cup. Um, but before Chester Williams and one or two others, they, you, you, if, you, if you were black or Indian or whatever, you were not allowed to represent the Springboks. And therefore, a lot of, a lot of people of color in, that grew up in, in schools and everything, they didn't want to play rugby at all. They saw it as a system, symbol of oppression. And after, 95 um and basically around about 2000 2001 the south african government wanted to rectify the lack of um diversity within the the national teams particularly cricket and rugby because everyone everyone in the township played soccer so th- so the bafana bafana became very majority people of color very quickly um based off of talent more than anything else um but what they wanted to do with the rugby and cricket teams is they ended up bringing in a quota system where they, whereby they wanted a certain percentage of the team to be made up of people of color. But where it failed originally was the fact that those people that they brought in were not necessarily the best players in their position to play those, to play those positions because again, they didn't grow up playing the sport because they weren't allowed to, or they, or they rebelled against the sport um, or their parents were rebelled against the sport. So um, it's only sort of now that you see an entire generation of players and uh, um, that have grown up from knee high to a grasshopper playing rugby <laughs> and doing um, like basically developing those skills to make them incredibly talented rugby players. And at the moment, um, one of the turning points in the in the way that the Springboks are seen by the vast majority of the country is uh, Sia Khaleesi being named Springbok captain. He's the first um, uh, black African um, Springbok rugby captain, and he's also the first black African captain to lift the, the Rugby World Cup in 2019. And um, that was seen in South Africa is a very particular turning point because up until that point only the white Afrikaner was captain it was that was their position that was his it, it was that 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 role and when um Rassi Erasmus the, the, the then head coach of the Springboks um made the made the decision to make Sikhlisi captain there was a there was a loud again loud minority that said that it was affirmative action that was the only reason he was captain and he wasn't even and there was calls to saying he wasn't even the best player to play his position but since then he's gone on to prove every single doubt are wrong and he's one of the best leaders in the world um at least in rugby and the, you can see it on the pitch everyone would would die for him on the pitch and 
what makes him particularly unique and a particularly brilliant unifier in South Africa is where he came from. So he came from a town called Zawaida in the Eastern Cape of South Africa. He, incredibly poor family, a township basically, and um, he was raised by his grandmother. And he eventually got a scholarship to play rugby at one of the very prestigious private schools in South Africa. And he effectively, he fought his way up through playing rugby to the position where he is now, where he, he literally watched um, the 1995 World Cup final in a Shabin, which is basically like a speakeasy slash illegal pub in the townships. Mm. Um, he, he was very young at the time. So he wasn't, I mean, he wasn't drinking obviously, but, um, <laughs> he was, but, but the, the Shabins had TVs and he basically w- watched Chester Williams in particular and, and Ron Pina lifting the, the, the World Cup and the, the iconic Nelson Mandela moment after the, after the, the final, he watched that in, in, in a township and, and, and when he saw that sort of thing, he, he, he made it his mission to want to play rugby and and then obviously the rest is history sort of thing and from the so f- from that from that turning point we've seen a vast growth in part- participation in rugby across the board in terms of particularly in in the previously under underprivileged uh, parts of the country and right now without looking at um the quota system. This is the most di- culturally diverse South African rugby team ever, and every single p- player deserves to be there. Whereas ten years ago, you could argue that X was there because of the color of his skin, or Y was there because of whatever. Now there is not a single player on that in, in, in that Springbok squad that you can say is there because he's what, what quote unquote a quota player, which is probably a which basically suggests exactly how far South African rugby has come in the last 25 years, 25 years, however long it's been since 1995. I can't do maths. 27 years. <laughs> um, it's, yeah, so it's, it's a long story short, sort of, um, sums up the, the, the history of the, of how, where it all came from. Um, because of what, because of Sia Khaleesi in particular, the South African rugby team is seen as much more unifying and much more representative of the country as a whole than it ever has been. Again, as I say, it's, it's not, not everyone will agree with me, but the, the, the large portion of the country would say that, that, that it is still – that it, it, it represents South Africa finally. Awesome. That's one of the things that rugby – like. It's interesting. I think every in group or every like group of people likes to think they're the virtuous ones, right? But rugby definitely has that like pat itself on the back kind of culture of like we're the good guys. We are respectful. <laughs> good old rugby values. <laughs> rugby values, yeah. Which are more just like mismanagement, but anyway. Um <laughs> But yeah, that's that's incredible and and I guess to and thank you for the history lesson to widen out the context, you know, sport sports in general, obviously, you know, football world cups happening right now, the biggest event in the world, arguably. And some people, you know, who don't identify maybe as like sports people don't get it or they don't see the value. So on a more philosophical level, why do you think sports drive such passion in people 
and why why do you why would you uh, how would you make the argument that sports you know are valuable to society as a whole? Ooh, that's a <laughs> very existential question. You're questioning my entire career. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, to answer the first point, um, I think what I what, what I think is uh, drives that passion in a lot of people to support their sport or whatever. Um, it could be. I probably starts at a young age with people that played the sport and like myself eventually couldn't play it on much any further but still wanted to be connected to their childhood and what they grew up playing but I think it, it, the, the the passion and the support for a team or the support for a club or whatever you or whatever it is you're so passionate about on, on a sporting aspect probably comes from an inbuilt sort of tribalistic element in a lot of people um, from a, a, a desire to belong to a system that is not necessarily that, that you have nothing no control over but you you and everyone else around you is in favor of, it wants them to do well if that makes sense mm-hmm. contribute so, to exactly but like you you can't really contribute to them to to a, to a large because obviously yeah. <laughs> support, support is support is support, but at the end of the day, the the, the players are going to play with or without you, and um, there's nothing really that you can do as a supporter to to to, to improve that. Um, but it's more. I think it's just the, the the collective thing of something greater than myself that I can become a part of. A community really is is, is the best way. It's, it's mm. like there's tribalism in the sort of rivalries on the pitch and off the pitch, and the f- football fans are particularly um, strong on the rivalries. Um, where you, they have home and away fans, and you ca- and two can't actually mix in the stadiums because otherwise bad things will happen. But um, that's a tribalistic aspect, but is, the, the the broader community aspect is it's just it's almost a way of escapism as well, because for for a large part of the population, um, they can watch sport and not have to worry about their own um, problems or their or problems in the rest of the world if if they happen to be. Um, Brought to brought to the attention of uh, via sport, like for example, what's going on in Qatar, uh, the war in Ukraine, racism, Black Lives Matter, um, the anti-apartheid stuff back in ninety before nineteen ninety five as well. All of that sort of took place on the sports field. But aside from those things, a lot of people gravitate to sport because there is none of that. You can just sit down, watch three hours of of entertainment. Um, Think back to when you used to play the sport, and it would connect you to, in a way to other other human beings on the planet. Even if you're watching it at home, um, you still feel connected to every other Springbok rugby supporter that were watching the Springboks beat England on the, on Saturday. Mm-hmm. Like that is how you that's that's how you function. The broader aspect of sport in general, though, and why it benefits society, um, to to use the famous rugby values sort of phrases <laughs> phrasing. Um, it creates a sense of community. It creates a sense of of teamwork, and it it teaches you ways to overcome obstacles. Like if if you're facing, like it, it, it's the most even in the non-contact sports, it's still one of the more violent ways of approaching a challenge. In in, in a sense, so it goes back to again early human. What's built in in you, I think, mm-hmm. that is the desire to 
overcome challenges through, through physical attributes or physical force. So take football, for example, if you're um, going up against a very solid high line defense, it's your physical ability to get around it that is what drives you as opposed to outthinking somebody. Uh, or, or out. I mean, granted, it's you can outthink them and still be physically outmaneuver them at the same time, and that's arguably how how it works. But there's just that it 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 it, it forms a general. I don't know. It's it, it's it, it's it's difficult to really explain. To be yeah, honest, yeah. Um, how I I think the anything that is real to the participants is real as like a baseline. So like the existence of God, the existence of love, these things are hard, intangible in some ways they they are intangible, but they're real mm. because they have a real effect on the world. And I think sports is similar because like to use a anecdote from where I'm from in Philadelphia in the United States, it's the NFL team is the Philadelphia Eagles. And that's like, it's, um, just assumed there that you are so anyone who lives there or is from there is an Eagles fan. And there's that constant click of uh, connection. So I think that's why it, it kind of um, reminds people of where they're from to represent and be represented by a, a group and it gives them something to, like you said, a distraction. Um, so yeah, I, I heard um, like, uh, you know, I just heard someone, say like you know sports are stupid and and I I was like I mean would you say art is stupid too because how would you define art you know I would define art as something that makes is a, in, for the artist is a way to express and for the recipient is something that it moves them or makes them think and so using those definitions right that's exactly what sports does so it's kind of interesting I don't think anyone's really trying to like cancel sports but I just think it's kind of fun <laughs> yeah I think, um, yeah, like you, 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 as you rightfully point out, like pe- people have their own, uh, their own um, ideas around sports that, that they think, oh, it's like there are dangers of sport, and I can understand the argument why people would say maybe you should stop playing it, especially mm-hmm. with concussions and mm-hmm. long-term effects of concussions. Um, but there's ways that we can make the sport safer and obviously rugby is working on it particularly trying to lower the tackle height and trying to in- improve HIAs, head, sorry, head injury assessments on the field. Basically, if you get hit in the, if, if anywhere you get hit on the head, you've got to do a, a, a test on the side of the pitch that determines whether or not you've got a concussion. And if you divert, display certain symptoms, then you can't, you, you get stood down for the rest of the game. Much like I believe they have similar protocols in the NFL. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure. but like I can, I, I can get I, I I get the the argument where a lot of people will say it's it, it means stupid is is one thing, but dangerous is probably the the the, the other way to put it for a lot of sports. <laughs> um, and it's I, I can understand the argument there, but then the counter argument to that would be, in general, just being active is in in and of itself a healthy pursuit and it, the 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 fitness levels that you need to be at in order to play incredibly high intense sports like soccer NFL uh well, sorry American football rugby I wouldn't put cricket in the, in that bracket cuz I, I don't know <laughs> there, there's not a whole lot of running to do in cricket um it's like baseball like the, exactly exactly it's just like baseball um but, but yeah 
there's the, the the benefits I think far outweigh the the cons and I mean it's sports not for everybody like people can say it's stupid and then and then they'll go and play three hours of gaming and that's also perfectly valid I might not necessarily say it's not for me but um if if if, if people enjoy it and it's a way of escapism then great don't don't, don't I just don't uh, be down on somebody's passion <laughs> yeah yeah for sure. I hope you are enjoying this week's episode of the Bro Nouveau podcast as much as I enjoyed recording it and bringing it to you. To get involved in the conversation, you can send me an email, contact at bronouveau.com or find me on Instagram at bronouveaupod. Please share this episode out with someone who you think will enjoy it. And you can leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. For full-length video episodes, head over to YouTube and search Bro Nouveau Podcast. Enjoy. So with the the Bro Nouveau Podcast, the what what I'm doing is promoting the Bro Nouveau mindset, right? And that's going to be more expressive, more reflective, more empathetic, and giving men kind of permission to be themselves as opposed to kind of being in the predefined box. And it started off with this kind of search of mine to define what's the opposite of like bad masculinity, right? Because we have plenty of examples of how not to behave, but there's not a lot of great discussions about, you know, what, what should our boys be looking up to? How should one define himself as a good man? So is this something you've thought about and, and how do you kind of move through the world thinking about that? Um, assuming, you know, you seem like a good guy. So I'm assuming, you know, you, you, you're trying to be a good person. <laughs> no, no. Uh, yeah. Um, so South Africa is one of the, it's, it's got a very bad reputation and a bad, very bad, very bad statistical um, proportion of gender-based violence, mm. um, which is, Something that the South African society at large is actively trying to combat and trying to to get rid of toxic masculinity. Um, so I myself am a huge proponent of being anti-toxic and mm-hmm. and trying to sort of um, find ways to 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 reduce that sort of thing. So um, rugby as well has a bit of a reputation in certain parts of the world that has that sort of toxic masculinity attached to it, unfortunately. Now, you, people say it's getting better in locker rooms and in dressing rooms and um, the whole locker room talk thing that went... Um, that, that, <laughs> so obviously, I, I, I know Trump. Americans know it all too well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, that Thankfully, I've been... Uh, from what I've heard, that, that, that sort of... That, that's been improved, particularly in um, a lot of sports dressing rooms. But what I strongly believe in is if you see something that you disagree with, be it a your friend saying something about this woman or non-binary person and you you know that it's wrong, call them out. Like 
sometimes it might not be quote unquote safe for you to call out some i mean it's not necessarily a friend anyone if you see any sort of um, toxic masculine masculine behavior the best thing to do is to call it out tell them to stop and i mean granted i say it, it might not be a safe space for you to do it but my my feeling is always it's even less safe for the woman in the picture mm. so i mean i'm not i'm not going out and telling people put yourself at risk and go get beat up but if we if we if men as a society don't call each other out every single time some they say something or they do something that displays that toxic masculinity we're eventually we're basically telling the people in the in that area that okay it's okay what i've just said there that's all right i can say it again whereas if you stop it as soon as you hear it they it starts to go in like okay maybe this actually isn't something that i can say and maybe this isn't something that i can do and that will change the mindset as generations go on but i also think um because we like the 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 younger generation at the moment i'm not not blaming everything on the older people like the old generation is not necessarily everything but everything bad with 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 (laughs) the world but um (laughs) The, the the current the, the the young generation at the moment is far more in tune with what can and can't be said and what should be. I mean, obviously, there's always a bad pockets, and I'm not going to paint everything with a, with a, with a nice broad brush. But I I have noticed in particular um, anyone under the age of thirty, you you're either incredibly toxic. <laughs> or you know exactly what, 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 what like yeah it's that's interesting there's no, like, there's no sort of in yeah. between anymore like, whereas <laughs> before everyone had that little bit in them yeah now it's either now it's either you're incredibly one way or you are woke and i hate the term woke because I hate it's been that so too. yeah um but like I, the, the 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 way the island actually have a nice word for it sound Sound, um, yeah. So if, you, if you're sound, that means you're you're a good person. You're like, and I think the majority of the, of the people under thirty are sound. It's just the other people that go the complete opposite direction. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's, it starts with the individual and calling out every instance that you see, and also taking steps to make make sure you catch yourself, because some people, I mean, my, myself growing up. Because we didn't know any better, we got into certain. I mean, I went to an all boys school as well, so it was very, very masculine centric and very toxic masculinity. There was yeah, toxic masculinity was rife in the in 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 the school. Um, it's different now, uh, thankfully, but um, we we didn't know any better. We were surrounded by boys our own age, and this was what we thought was cool. Um, so. I had to unlearn all of that when I got out of school and went to university when I realized that everything that I'd learned was well I wasn't even learned it was sort of ingrained in me from absorbed from yeah. my, my peers and all that sort of thing I had to sort of unlearn all of that and that is another is another way that anyone that isn't growing up but is currently in the midst of the midlife crises, they can unlearn all the toxic masculinity that they've just absorbed through going through life in general. But that's an active step that you have to take. And you have to actually understand why saying 
certain things about other people or acting in a way that makes other people uncomfortable is not okay. You have to understand what, and also you have to understand what makes, like, um, I'm I'm six foot four. I'm a very large man. <laughs> I am not a danger to anyone on the on the streets, but because of my size, because of my gender, I'm automatically assumed to be a danger, mm. and that's not my fault. That's society's fault. But I must take steps to make sure that other women on the side of the street or other non-binary people on the side of the street do not see me as a threat. Be it take a few steps, uh, slow down. If 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 you if you feel like you're making the person in front of you uncomfortable, acknowledge your privilege as a large white man, and say, okay, you know what? Actually, that person is uncomfortable because I seem to, I appear to be following them. I'm going to slow down a bit to make sure that they have enough space, or cross the street, or do something to make them comfortable in the position in in the in the place that they are. Even if it means you going out of your way a little bit, and it's, I mean slowing down or crossing the street, what is that? Right. Yeah. Totally. I love that, man. That's very self-aware of you. Because that stuff does matter. I think another example of something that I took for granted and had to learn was I went and played on a gay rugby team in San Francisco. It's like the most San Francisco thing you could do, right? (laughs) (laughs) And I, you know, I I think I grew up with a pretty, also all boys school, but, you know, we were on that cusp of different mindset. I had, you know, strong uh, role models, my mom and my sister. So I was kind of, it had these ideas of like, okay, like let's not, let's not think we're better than anyone else or assume that men are a superior gender or anything like that. So I kind of had this conception, but still being a straight guy playing in a straight sports environment, I never got the gay perspective until one of my friends told me, you know what, dude, you're the first straight guy who I've ever been friends with and who I haven't been, you know, um, intrinsically threatened by, I guess, because of their previous experiences. And that really blew my mind. And and, and it was really saddening because that is a bummer. You know, like that's, that's not ideal. We don't want that. <laughs> and that's not, exactly. you know, representative of everyone, every gay person, obviously it was just that one person, but just the fact that the society had created that condition was, was, it was telling. Yeah. But I think something that also sparks that is almost in a way an inability for men um, to embrace femininity, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Or like traditionally feminine things like expressing feelings and hugging, for example. Yep, yep. Saying I love you to your close people. Yeah. Exactly. Like yeah. Um, it, it, that, that's something that's society, not just men, but general society. A lot of women, a lot of women say it's quote unquote gay to tell you how they feel. Uh, or, or sorry, yeah, to, to tell you how, to tell them how you feel. Um, so it's, it's not just men that need to unlearn a lot of the toxic masculine traits. Um, like the general society needs to be more accepting of every sort of, um, well, everyone's sort of ideas behind femininity, masculinity. Um, like women can be masculine, men can be feminine. It is, it is legitimately what you're feeling and there shouldn't be a, sort of 
one way or the other and you have to you have to be tough you have to be strong you have to be this all the time totally and and the the flip side is that there is examples of it going too far right like we both said like the the woke mob is something that isn't necessarily productive so how do you conceptualize of the next generation then and and say you were to have kids you know how would you coach up your sons and daughters in that sense because we've kind of had the strong movement with our generation away from the bad stuff and defining the bad stuff but there's also unless we kind of change the script there's going to be a gap right so how do you think about not going too far and how do you also accommodate for the middle ground or the nuances where of course we're not always going to be angels right so how do you grapple with that I mean, I I don't necessarily know if I want kids. Right, right. That's the, that's <laughs> For the sure. one thing. So I'm, <laughs> nice, easy, easy cop out there. Um, <laughs> no, uh, to be honest, I think let kids be themselves. Um, I, I don't think you can really go too far. Like I don't, I don't know how too far is, and um, like. For, yeah, I always I, I always think that as long as whoever it is is being themselves and not harming other people by being themselves, there's no real way. There's no, there, there's no going too far. Like as long as my existence or my kids' existence doesn't infringe on the existence of somebody else, and there and and subsequently that person's existence doesn't infringe on the, the existence of my kids. I think as long as they are themselves and they are kind, respectful, and um, empathetic towards other people, that's all. That, that's the best way to 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 raise them in a way. Um, is like boy, girl, or whatever you want, or whatever, or whatever you have as a kid. Um, they uh, they've just basically just raise them to to respect other people's existences and not think that they deserve more or less rights than anyone else because everyone is equal. It's human rights. Everyone right. is human. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. So instead of kind of focusing on a certain outcome or over-defining, stick to the basic values and be consistent and then let you know the next generation kind of chart their own course with some some strong foundation. Yeah, I, the, the best way to put it is in South Africa we have a term called Ubuntu. It's a it's a Bantu word. It basically means I am because we are. It's community. It's um, it, you can call it a communism in a way, but <laughs> but, but, but but not not the political system. More the everyone is there for everyone else, and if if you think that you're better than somebody the entire system collapses it's basically ubuntu is like a table and everyone is a leg once one leg tries mm. to get on top of the table it falls so like just have ubuntu have a belief that you are part of the system and not above the system and that's you you can't like, don't be a dick just don't be a dick <laughs> <laughs> for sure a good we have a i had a i had a touch group touch rugby group in uh oh no no this is my college coach would always say that like if we were playing touch 
and someone would like kick or like do something stupid, he would always just scream like, "Don't be a dick." <laughs> it's my it's 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 my life motto. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's awesome, man, Stephen. Thank you so much for uh, your reflections and and, and your uh, openness, man. I think certainly fulfilling the goal of of the the podcast and for uh, for people who want to find your work, your reading, your reporting, uh, where can they head? Um, so I'm on Off the Ball. Um, it's an Irish um, website and radio station primarily. But then also I'm on uh, Twitter and Instagram um, mainly. So uh, Stephen KG on Twitter and Stefan. Yeah, S-T-E-P-H-A-N um, K-G underscore photography on Insta um, I don't have TikTok and I don't have um, YouTube so those are the only places you'll be able to find me nice awesome man well uh, thank you yeah thank you very much it was an absolute pleasure to, to chat with you and yeah thanks yeah, again thanks for having for me on it was great taking the time great chatting to you too